Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. Today, I revisit my conversation with artist and performer Chris Dobrovolsky as we discuss the motivation for Chris's new show, Toy Stories. We look at the implicit challenges in creating and performing the same material night after night and discuss the notion of authenticity, a central motif of Chris's work. Chris shares his thoughts on the fluid boundaries between what is perceived as real and unreal and how he uses that in his show. Please join me as we look at art through a different lens. Hello, Chris, and welcome back to the show. It's really good to have you here. Hi, how you doing, Caroline? I'm good, thank you. So um, I got you back because obviously by popular demand, uh, um, I wanted to hear a little bit more really about the show that you're doing now because I know it's coming to London in October, early October, the Pleasant yeah. Theatre. Everyone, please get your tickets ready. Um, and I just really wanted to talk, because because in our previous conversation, we kind of touched briefly on some of the themes in the, in the show um, and your work around that. But what I really wanted to talk to you was about the, your kind of, underlying motivation for creating that work mm. if there is any and <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure there is but um what was your underlying motivation for creating this creating this particular show well i think yeah i have to start by sort of thinking yeah what is my motivation there um mm. so uh, i think i mentioned in the last talk about escaping from art college and I literally just didn't want to be there so the motivation was very simple just want to escape from Hull I built the boat out of driftwood and tried to escape um now the show I'm doing at the moment um I suppose the weird thing you see all the talks I've done have come out of this kind of uh thing where you get people like me the visiting lecturer going into art college and doing a talk about their artistic practice. But um, now what's happened is that the talks have sort of taken over. So uh, in a way, my artistic practice is doing talks. So one of the things about the show is that I do go off on this tangent where I'm basically talking about going into art college and talking. (laughs) It's all a bit meta. Uh, mm. That is my artistic practice, really. Um, so, and of course, the other thing is, is you kind of it. One of the things you, I try and do is be genuine and authentic. But of course, as you know, as an actress, it's kind of like um, when you say the same talk every night, say at Edinburgh for a festival, for example, for mm. three weeks. It's difficult once you're on show five to remain, in one sense, uh, authentic, because you've just said exactly the same thing as you said the night before. <clears throat> so um, you have to then sort of like uh, a bit of an act, I guess. Learn how to act, I think, is what I tried to do. Mm. Um, so, but with art, is it, look, I think I used to quote um, from Picasso about art is the lie that, showed, that shows the truth, it's not the real thing. Uh, somebody told me that actually the word art 
is basically just short for artificial, but anything that's not real, so sculpture, painting, is not the real thing, it's just an interpretation of that. And so uh, I go into art colleges, I try to be very authentic and genuine about why I make things, and then, of course, I think I have this moment that I talk about in the show where I, I call it the Groucho Marx um, moment where I say, uh, sincerity sells. And if you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I, uh, that's where I am. Uh, that's where I am. Um, trying to sort of like, uh, and I kind of like it accepted in the end that, you know, you there's a sort of genuineness to the fakeness. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, that's also the bit in the show where I then go off this tangent about Hitler. Yeah, yeah, because because yeah, it is quite without giving too much away. Uh, I don't know if you can really with with a, this tangent about Hitler because it is it is um, the show. The show has a lot of content, as you say. It's it's part it's part autobiographical. It's part. Uh, Ode to your family. Well, it's very much autobiographical, I suppose. It's a part family history, art practice, cross with the talk, cross with mm. performance. Yeah, uh, yeah, talking art. <laughs> <laughs> what? So what? Political commentary, history. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is it. This is it. When you were talking about, I. Especially with the political commentary, we didn't. We, when we last spoke, we didn't talk too much about that. But I know that it's something that you were quite, um, you're quite uh, vocal about in the show, which is a good thing. Yeah, but the, 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 my angle to it was wasn't just sort of like, oh, I don't like, I'm left wing and I hate the right wing. I think what fascinated me particularly about Boris Johnson in this context of, you know, being authentic, is that um, there's certain techniques I felt myself using to come across as authentic and then start to doubt myself. Uh, then I noticed that Boris Johnson does exactly the same thing. He kind of like, he says things to be liked um, and uh, he says things, well, I was obsessed with, um, you know, the sort of fluid boundaries between the real and the unreal, you know. So mm. I kind of make a, I'll have a toy thing and I'll take it somewhere very real. So I'll put a load of you know, pretend Antarctic objects to the real Antarctic. And so it's just blur this boundary. And then the toys come back, they come back as real, authentic Antarctic fake toys, you know. Mm. So I'm interested in where this sort of boundary between real and unreal is, you know, where it's art and where it's art, where it's real and artificial. And I think when you started sort of like digging into anything that Boris Johnson did or Trump, it was kind of, it's, I mean, it's basically, I'm talking about post-truth politics. It was kind of like, almost like art, life imitating art, where kind of like uh, this stuff that we're supposed to give us a handle on to, you know, rely on in the world. It's just, fairy tales and nonsense <laughs> so that's the kind of real motivation for that part of the show yeah yeah well it's true though isn't it? I, it it's interesting what you say there about this post-truth politics and that whole arena because you know 
Yeah, in short, what I was trying to say was my interest in it wasn't political. My interest in it was artistic. (laughs) Because I could see the same kind of like techniques of like blurring the boundary between unreal and real. And this is where Hitler comes in. Mm. Well, in the show, I don't think I'll give it much away in the show. It's just basically, um, you know, like a lot of performers, you um, often have to get silly kind of promo. Actually, when you're an artist, there's this thing like a visual artist. And it's quite often like the local newspaper would turn up. And what we used to do was we would go and hide somewhere so that the photographer has to take a photograph of the art. Because if you're Mm -hmm. there, what always ends up happening is you get coerced into taking this really crappy, cheesy photograph, standing next to your artwork, smiling like this. (laughs) So (laughs) what you do, go and hide. They have to take the photograph or they get in a member of the public to be looking at it. And it makes you look more serious. When I started doing this work where you kind of, you end up in theatre, that doesn't work. You have to have a photograph of your face. And I kind of like, I resisted it at first until somebody showed me the Edinburgh Fringe Festival guide. And uh, I was in it and I couldn't even find myself. (laughs) Mm. And basically, as you go through a local newspaper or guide, what you're looking for is, another pair of eyes to latch onto. That's how it works. That's how our brain works. Mm. You've got to have a vision face. So, um, you know, I don't fight it anymore. I let the people I'm working with pay £250 to a photographer to sit in the audience. And, of course, I kind of, most of it is me just pointing at a picture with a stick because it's a lecture. And mm. uh, But sometimes I get quite animated, walk away from the screen, and sort of make more exaggerated gestures. And then the photographer gets very excited because they've suddenly got an opportunity to take some photographs that isn't just another photograph of me pointing at another picture with a stick. <laughs> then when the pictures come back, you've got about 30 pictures of me making all these stupid kind of like faces and like my arms are all over the place, <laughs> looking slightly weird. Flicking through the pictures, uh, I thought, oh, these look familiar. And then I remembered there's a very famous historical sequence of photographs of Hitler. Hitler basically paid, I think he was actually, he wasn't on a stage, he went into a photographer's studio. Studio, yeah. And uh, yeah, posed for a series of these. So he's pretending that he's given a speech and he's sort of holding all, all those sort of, you know, angry sort of grimaces and hand gestures that we associate with Hitler. They were all rehearsed and practiced. And uh, he's in this sequence of photographs, he's like posing for each single one. And it's about, as you can find them always, I've found a loop about 10 different ones on online. Yeah. So, yeah, not, and, not a comfortable association to make, <laughs> but you know. And you just did it naturally. Like yeah. <laughs> and you just did, did it naturally. Your poses are reminiscent of Hitler. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, but it's interesting what you said earlier about, you know, in terms of acting, like, yeah, there is that, there is that, there is an artificiality, obviously, because you're representing something. It's your, it's it's a representation of life or a representation of a story in whatever way that story wants to, well, in the Western theatre, however that story wants to, to play out. But as a performer, I find that, that's, there is, especially, 
if you're doing a long run, if you're really present in that moment, there's, because you have a different audience every night, it is actually different. It's actually, you know, I haven't quite yet got, maybe I've not done a run for like five years, but it's like, it's like you do, I found to stop myself from going mad, I do kind of try and make things different. Not so different that, you know, it's going to throw everybody else on the stage, but different in a way where we're, I'm taking it because it, because I, I'm different that, that next day I'm different. It can't be the same for the very fact that I'm, I've aged a day, you know, it can't be the same for the very fact that the whole audience is completely different. So do you find when you you're doing your lectures, does that play any, or, do, or when you're doing your show, do you find yourself thinking or having any kind of view of the audience that is in some way maybe reflective of that? Or is it just like, right, I'm here, I'm doing this, you're going to listen? Or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to bloody listen. You're going to listen to what I'm saying. Well, the first time I used to do it, I'd kind of like, you know, turn up with a lot of energy. And it would be, you know, each, I mean, it's different because it's a slide talk. You kind of, each image is kind of yeah. like a trigger. So I'd kind of tell the story and then it would be quite spontaneous. And I think the first time I ever did two lectures in a row so I went somewhere else the next day went to some other art college and it was just suddenly all the words that I'd said yesterday came out of my mouth and just all and I felt myself feeling fake because I think I said that yesterday and it sounded exactly like that and I kind of like doubted myself for an hour and it didn't feel any good so the first time I went to Edinburgh I I personally you know asked people who actually <laughs> with experience and <laughs> said, you know, and I sort of said, I'm worried about this. Uh, my friend Anthony was really good. The first thing he said to me was, he said, Christopher, um, the thing you've got to remember is you, when you go to Edinburgh, you're going to do 21 shows. Some of them are going to be brilliant. Yeah. Some of them are just going to be shit. And you're just going to have to accept that. <laughs> and that was amazingly liberating. And then I spoke to another person who was a proper actress, and she was saying, yeah, you kind of, they reckon, yeah, the first show where you're kind of full of adrenaline, it's exciting and fresh mm. And then the second show is a sort of like you're finding an equilibrium. She said somewhere about show four or five, it sort of like finds itself was the way they would describe it to me. Yeah. So I took all that on board. Uh, and it's interesting, there's a, a friend of mine called uh, Richard Dominici, who, who does a very simple, we do a very, we didn't know each other, but we met each other in Edinburgh for the first time. And we both, you know, do these uh, performance lectures, is what they're called. Mm. You know, a lot of uh, talking about our art practice. And he, he, I noticed over the 20, where he took a very different route to me. He kind of like tried to, instead of, you know, I tried to kind of like hone it down and make, you know, make, tell the same story the best way. Uh, Richard kind of like I remember him this has gone back a long time it's about 15 years ago he kind of like tried to make every show different he was adding bits taking bits mm -hmm. away so it was kind of like he made a lot of work and a lot of fresh it was like building on things but um, and that's quite liberating that <laughs> oh really oh okay yeah. he just because it's kind of like he did 
I think he did what I would have done if I hadn't had somebody tell me this is how we, this is the convention. Mm. This is the conventional way of doing it. These are these are the yeah. But that's Probably. it, isn't it? It's the perception of the viewer, isn't it? It's just like when we go and see, especially in our in our Western kind of model of theatre. It's mm. the audience goes to see something and they're expecting a certain they're expecting to understand what the story is and they're expecting obviously and they're expecting to uh experience some emotion um whether that's making them feel laughter or sa- happiness or sadness or whatever um but I think there's something quite exciting in actually and exciting as a performer and exciting for the audience. If you come and you see things and it's slightly different every night, because it takes a lot of skill to yeah. to to be able to step away from the path, but then be able to bring it back. And to do it in a way where you're... Yeah. You, you well, I don't of... have that skill. <laughs> <laughs> so my show will be very similar every night. <laughs> okay. Everybody grab your tickets now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to find the best version and keep with that. Yeah. 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 Well, this is it. This is it. Do you think, though, do you think that you would... But it still looks like I've made it up as I've gone along. But yeah, but that's a wonderful thing, though, Chris. That is the wonderful thing. That's what keeps it fresh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what keeps it fresh. So, um, so, and so the arc of this, because this is quite, it's quite hard. I would say it's quite hard because you're creating a piece of theatre that is... When you say it's a performance lecture, it's still a, it's still a piece of theatre, but it's that it's finding, I suppose that uh, beginning, middle, and end, or finding the arc of the story, making the arc of the story make sense, packing everything in. What mm. were your challenges with that? Yeah, editing it down to just over an hour—that was the big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was difficult, and then yeah. And still having the important bits of narrative, always the problem. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I still got to edit another ten minutes out. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But of course, the other thing is, it's like you're showing stuff in the exhibition, in the show that you've made, and each one of those is, was a challenge in itself. You know, yeah. so there's a bit where Putin comes out of the garden shed. That was a week's <laughs> work there. <laughs> A week's work whittled down to oh, yeah, yeah. 30 Big seconds. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It took, it took yeah. me a week to get that to work. So yeah. he's, a, he's an awkward bugger, in, even as a cardboard cutout. <laughs> 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 it would not come out of that shed. <laughs> come on, Vladimir, get out. Um, I don't know so- what the neighbours were thinking. So and and what was the what was the Putin uh art piece of art? The one so there's a, a train pulls a cardboard cutout of Vladimir Putin out of my shed. It's just a segue, to be honest with you. It's a, well, it's a segue from what am I talking about? Um oh yeah, Nazis. Yeah, so yeah. so a, f- a family friend of ours, you know, he wasn't a Nazi, he was like a he was a 
um, 15-year-old kid who'd been conscripted into the army when he was at the end of the war. He always called himself Hitler's last hope. And the way the way we the way we met him, there's a lot of this revolves around this pig farm we used to work work on when I was oh, a teenager. Yeah. So um, and so this guy, this farmer, we met him because there used to be this thing called the Anglo-Polish Society. Lots of Polish people, like my dad, settled in Essex. They had their own social group. They called it the Anglo-Polish Society. They'd meet up every month, have a dance, drink together and speak Polish. Inevitably, over the years, the numbers dwindled. You know, so come the early 80s, mid-80s, you know, the dancers were getting less frequent and smaller. Now, as well as the Anglo-Polish Society, you also had this thing called the Anglo-German Society. Mm. And they were made up primarily of, like, uh, ex-German prisoners of war who didn't go back to Germany. And wow. they had their own organisation. But also, same, similar age group, or exactly the same age group, they were in it having the same problem with all their dancers becoming smaller and less frequent. So sometime in the mid-'80s, unofficially, they kind of merged. So all the Germans <laughs> just they come and have a dance. And that's where, we, that's where my mum and dad met, met, met George, this kind of ex-German prisoner of war, who announced he calls himself Hitler's last hope. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, called up at age 15. So the segue is, I kind of like, you know, there's a, there was that was the section I'm talking about finding this German tank when I went on this trip to Poland. And uh, it's all a bit awkward. Well, they find, I, I just stumbled across these kind of, the, the people I'm staying with, they said, oh, somebody's found a tank in the road, some archaeologists have come, do you want to tag along and watch it all? And I thought, yeah, come watch this. These kind of guys with a with their own YouTube channel pulling bits of this tank out of the road, which is all exciting for me because I'm a bit of a war nerd. And um, but the exciting bit was when we got back, the guy who I was staying with said, "Yeah, well, we he said a few years ago we found the bodies of those who um, <laughs> must have been in that tank in the garden, sort of just by accident." Yeah. And he told me this kind of like, yeah, story. I kind of made me think about, you know, George, this, you know, 15-year-old kid. Um, he told me, yeah, it could have been like George, you know, really, just young, misguided men. Mis- yeah. So, I, I think the first edit of the show, I kind of like launched it like that. So, yeah, you know, the, they'd never left yeah. the place, yeah. these Germans. And then there's a pause. And then the feedback was... You sound a bit like a Nazi supervisor there. That isn't what I'm going for. So the next time I did it, so I go, so the next time I said something like, um, um, and these young men with their whole lives ahead of them had never left. Yeah. And then I go, good. Hey, <laughs> <Eight> Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> with some completely inappropriate field player behind me. Good. So somebody says, "No, now you sound like a psychopath." <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a delicate balance. So now, but I love paradox. So so now I kind of find really play on that. So I start. I leave that big pause for everybody's sympathy, and then I say, "What are you like, Nazi sympathizer?" And I accuse everyone in the audience of being a Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> 
And then I go, yeah, no, it's good. I said, yeah. And then I kind of like launched go completely the other way and sort of like talk about being a teenager working for this family friend. And I go, yeah, we were on the farm a lot alone together. Yeah. I could have bumped him off at any time, really. And then I've got all this sort of illustrations of this uh, toy farm set. I said, I could have um, buried him in the hole or fed him to the pigs. <laughs> but then I kind of go, you know, obviously, as I'm listening to myself, contemplating, murdering my friend, to be fair, I sound more like a Nazi than he ever did. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got a notion of, like, Nazis attacking, you know, somebody, you know, you can... <laughs> It's a strange, ambiguous territory, and mm. it was like, basically it's the lead into what Putin's um, agenda, supposed agenda, was when he invaded Ukraine. It was kind of like went in there to denazify Ukraine, mm. which was mm. bonkers. <laughs> so mm. that's the that was the segue. Yeah, wow, Chris, <laughs> your your work is very layered. Mm. You know, it's incredibly layered. Uh, it's and and it I seems like almost, a lot of layers. but it uh, but it seems a shame that it's like you know down to like an hour where there's so much content and there's so much story and there's so much because when you were saying there each thing that you talk about you you put so much work into each yeah piece of work it's. The, I suppose the challenge is, I suppose, giving enough weight or and giving things, doing things that justice and creating yeah, that story. A lot, I think when you saw the show, we spoke a lot about how um, it would be nice if there was like a pause after the thing for it to sink in. Mm, mm. And I'm thinking, yes, I wish I had the luxury of that pause. <laughs> 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 yeah. oh, but the thing is, it was sometimes it's like uh, there was a couple of things that we changed because I kind of like uh, I changed it. I had this kind of like um, oh, there was a bit where I met these guys making a YouTube channel film about uh, this army that my dad was in. Mm. And I said, uh, "Yeah, oh my, well." The thing is, my dad, and they were sort of saying, well, my dad was in that army. And I said, oh, we're making a YouTube documentary about it. We're finding veterans of that Polish army and documenting their story, making a film. I said, well, my dad died over 20 years ago. And they said, yes, we're having the same problem because um, we we record these veteran stories and we find not long afterwards that they've died. Or, and in fact, they said, we haven't found a survivor for a mm. very long time. So I say, oh, and maybe they're all dead. I said, possibly. And the thing is, the first time I did this was funny because I say, what's the name of the film anyway? I'd like to watch it. And they say it's called The Immortals. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> the first, this, I had um, arguments with Paul over a whole day about that one line because yeah, Paul just kept saying, it, that's not the point. I said, well, and, and nobody's laughing, yeah? Yeah. And then I realised what it was. I kind of, like, thought it was so funny. I was delivering that story, and I go, uh, with, like, a punchline, where I go, and what's the name of your film? The, the Immortals. Immortals. No one laughs. 
But then I went back to doing it like you just said it. Almost, What's the name of the immortals? The immortals, yeah. And quickly, without pause, and go on to the next thing. Weirdly, that gets a bigger laugh. Yeah. Well, this is it, isn't it? It's it's yeah. It's it's first rule of comedy spike timing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah first rule of comedy spike. Time timing building up <laughs> expectations uh, yeah. yeah yeah exactly 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 that's the thing that the audience love isn't it it's just like they like to people like to have ownership and again it's that when you're looking at the art you and you the art whether it's visual art or performance art you you are part of that you're part of the performance and so, yeah, feeling feeling a connection to it and getting the joke and going, ah, the audience like to feel clever. The audience like to feel included. The audience like to go, ah, oh, I got that. You didn't have yeah. to explain it to me, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's true, though. So it's, it's a really satisfying thing, I think, where uh, especially when they're, I found when people are watching puppetry and they'll suddenly see something there, where if it's maybe object manipulation and you'll see something and your perception of it is like, oh, my God, I've, I see something that nobody else has kind of seen. Or each individual's experience of what they're seeing is completely unique to them because it's based in, you know, all their life experience. So, yeah. Um, so what do you think? What do you think is next? What's your next piece of... What's your next? <laughs> I don't know, but the last conversation I had with my partner was, don't worry, I promise this will be the last show I do. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> we agreed there was far too much work going into it <laughs> for the returns. So um, I don't know. I think I... I I need to actually. I mean, the sad thing is, it was like, did I, was I telling you about the exhibition I was supposed to have been in? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was that in the last podcast we did? Yes, that was in the last podcast, but uh, I'm sure everybody would like to hear that again. But the thing is, that was, there's a bit in the film that just made me think about it because of, of like effort going into something. There's a bit where I made this Boris bus drive around a big scale electrics track in the farm as part of the socially distanced drive-through art exhibition that was, and that was like a massive thing to make and get that to work and which and where was that again okay, it's a place called hatch so um it's this like a it's a used to be a chicken farm and this really um lovely guy bought it with some it, uh, sorry hatch. sorry chris a chicken farm in a place called hatch no, no, it's a, in a place called um, Langport. In oh, OK. Somewhere, and they've called it Hatch. Oh, right. OK, got because it. Because it used to be a chicken farm. Yeah. OK, yeah. But, yeah, see, that was quite interesting. When I, when I went down, there were some friends of mine that organised, come up with the idea and they'd organised it, asked me if I wanted to be in it, and there's no budget or anything like that. And I was kind of thinking, do I want to do that? And then, of course, we had our... Um, uh, money, if everyone got their money for, well, most people got their money from Rishi Sunak for the old, um, what was the money called? Oh, who knows? I that don't money. even know. Yeah. yeah. So um, I thought, I could really just do this thing. So, so I was still wearing it up. I went down, saw this guy who was like a, kind of like a, 
it must be about 70 so he's kind of like a first generation hippie really mm. and um he bought this farm cheap he bought some other building really cheap in an auction that then some nasty property developer bought off of him for tons of money <laughs> and then didn't get planning permission meanwhile my friend has come away with this big stack of money and i thought oh, what can i invest it in now that i can uh, invite my friends to <laughs> so he bought this chicken farm and then some other friends who are artists are kind of like they've kind of he's let them set up in different areas and sort of studio mm-hmm. they said we could have this event here so anyway i kind of went along um, and the only person there was ian who owned the place and I was trying to explain to him, you know, I normally do these things, I actually have a budget to work with. Mm. And, and he said something like, well, the thing is, this thing that we're trying to organise, you know, I just feel like it would be good if we could just all come together and do this thing and, you know, see what comes out of it. Mm. And at the end, the results may be that it's shit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> at all, and I was completely under disarmed by this guy because normally you kind of like I do these exhibitions where you get the the person in charge, you dig it out, give you all this stuff about how mm. amazing it's going to be, and then at the end it was a bit of an anticlimax and a bit rubbish. Yeah, this mm. was amazing. I was I was completely uh, swayed by this guy's this guy's honesty where he went, yeah, this might be shit. But isn't that refreshing? Isn't that refreshing to actually not have so much pressure on you? I mean, uh, and again, I think this goes back to what we said in the first uh, podcast about failure being really, well, there's, I don't think there is failure, but, but experiencing something, not having to push for something to be successful. And I mean, it's a bloody luxury. You know, it's luxurious to be in that position, but also I think when that um, pressure is off you, it does allow you to. It does allow creativity to really flow. You know, yeah, because did. you're not trying to to create something that's fantastic. It's actually being again, People as I was saying, very low expectations. Yeah, People arrive with low expectations and then are blown away. I once went to this, um, uh, so Priscilla, she's from Brazil. And, uh, first time I went to Brazil, Priscilla and her mother took me to... Um, this is your partner, uh, yeah. This is my partner, Priscilla, yeah. We went to this uh, sort of sculpture park, private sculpture park near Bela Horizonte uh, called Inochin. And it was like a, some plantation-owning millionaire built himself a vast kind of sculpture park based on a kind of European, I don't know, sculpture festival or something like that. Mm. But huge collection, massive names. And um, the first thing I noticed, it was like, it it felt like, for some reason it felt like uh, going to see a a James Bond villain in their lair. You know, in a James Bond film, the villain always lives Mm. somewhere completely mad, like a... Rebuilt castle or a volcano mm. or something like that, and then they have some sort of perverse collection of something like shark, yeah, like a, a James Bond villain who had a collection of contemporary art. 
then you notice there's like all this like um every piece of art uh had it, a lot of because you know some of it was outdoor sculpture but some of it needed to be inside so he just built a purpose-built pavilion for each piece of contemporary art that he bought oh. there. and it was like over this vast tract of land that he owned so you can't even walk between some of the different pieces of work so they were uh people driving these golf carts around which made it feel even more like a James Bond film exactly all they needed was to be wearing a bikini and we have a knife or a gun and it would have been <laughs> it wasn't quite like that so you get in a golf cart get driven to a get driven to the next pavilion and so one for example was at the top of a hill you dropped off at the bottom of the hill of the golf cart then you have to sort of walk up this long winding path go in this glass built you know thing to house this piece of contemporary art which was essentially i think a microphone in a hole i think that's what it was but whatever it was yeah by the time you've got to this place and driven there in a golf cart climbed up a path gone to this purpose-built building there's very little contemporary art that's ever going to live up to that sort of level of expectation <laughs> If I'd seen the same thing in some kind of like what or kind of like building like a pop up exhibition in a, a warehouse somewhere in London, I'd have thought, oh, that's quite good, really. But there, by the time I'd got to the every piece of contemporary art, it was kind of like your expectation level was in uh, impossible levels. That's incredible, though, isn't it? That's that's our perception, isn't it? Working overtime because we're thinking layer upon layer upon layer of it as sort of excitement about what it's going to be and then it's anti-climax you're right so um so there's no so there will i'm sure you're going to have more more shows chris you're going to make more work well we'll see (laughs) (laughs) and can you and and can you before we go because i know you've got to go soon but can we can you just let everybody know when your show is and Um, where it is well, I'm doing one on Friday, actually. Oh, in, wow. Yeah. New Mills, Springbank Art Centre, New Mills, as part of the um, New Mills Art Festival. Okay. Uh, and then the one... Oh, and where is New Mills? What part of the country it's, is that? It's Stockport, Manchester. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, Friday night. Where are we now? We're Monday tonight. It's Friday. Um, then, yeah, Pleasance Theatre and... You actually knew what date it was, and I didn't earlier, so you might have to say when it is. <laughs> I think you told me, and I remembered it. It seared itself into my memory. Uh, I think it's, is it the 6th of October? Was it the 6th of October? There's two dates. Do I quickly look at my phone while we're, while we're chatting? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, and how's it been, and how have audiences received it so far? Well, no complaints. That's good. I was a bit... Um, Bonus. Yeah, like I said, I mean, we've done a few uh, pre-tour shows, well, while we're still making it, so the early versions, I think, we, I got out. Because a, a lot of the material is sensitive because, you, you know, you've got pictures of Hitler in it. You know, you get, you say that in the wrong way and obviously it comes across totally wrong. So I've, I've hopefully made all of those mistakes already. So mm. now... It doesn't. It, it 
sets the wrong tone, the right tone. Uh, I've just found it on my phone. The show is in, oh, so to end of October, look, 24th and oh. 25th of October. 24th and 25th. I lied. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. 24th and 25th at the Pleasance in North London. Yeah. Brilliant. Fantastic. Um, and I've just got to say, yeah, people go and see the show because it is really great. It's fantastic. It's a really, there's a lot there. There is a lot there, but it's it's woven together really well. And it's a really fantastic journey through your life and through your creation. Thank you. Yeah. No, it yeah. really is. <laughs> it really is. That's what I want to see. Let me justify my existence is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I want to see more of these creations. Oh, Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for so oh, much for Always lovely coming to speak to Caroline. Oh, thank you. It's really lovely to speak to you. And you, I'll put in the show notes your uh, contact details, but your website again is? Uh, ChrisDobbo.com. ChrisDobbo.com. V-O.com. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Chris. It's really good to see you. And I'll see you again at the end of October for your show. Brilliant. Um, and thank you, everybody. Thank you again for listening to the Perception Podcast. Uh, please listen and follow and like and share and subscribe. Until next time. Bye. <laughs>